Good morning. It's been a while since I heard a MySpace reference. It's a dark place. Don't go there. It's funny. Um, I also love that nobody knew what an answering machine was. That makes me happy. There's these occasional moments that I have. I'm, I'm probably like the first year, I think, of millennial generation. I graduated in the year 2000. I was born in 1982. Um, and so there's parts of Gen X that I identify with. There's parts with, with being a millennial that I identify with. And nothing will make you realize how old you've become than stepping into a youth ministry every now and then. And quoting a movie and having everybody just stare at you, be like, why did you just say that weird thing? What was that? And realizing that everything has changed. We are all getting older all the time. It's a really beautiful thing. We're going to be in the middle of this generation series for the next three weeks. And the whole goal of this, just so that you guys know, uh, isn't necessarily to say, here are the things that typify each generation. Here are the things every generation has experienced, like some kind of outline of, you know, just what each generation is like. Each message is going to be focused on this idea of, you know, being a multi-generational church is kind of hard. And, and actually, being multi-generational in this life is a little bit difficult. There's a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different things happening there. How do we do this well? Because it's really, really important. And if this is your first time with us, I think this is important beyond just being in this space as a church together. I think it's important in our families. I think it's important in friendships. I think it's important in the workplace. Like this transcends all of these moments. We're in this all the time. And so I hope there's some wisdom to be gained and some goodness that we walk away with here. Um, and then it's a gift to each of us because being a multi-generational church, being a multi-generational community is a really powerful thing. You know, years ago, when I was much younger, I think it was like 23, 24 at the time, I was uh, pretty newly married. I didn't have any kids at that point. And I remember I attended Thanksgiving at my aunt's house. <clears throat> and we're all hanging out and we had Thanksgiving dinner. We stuffed ourselves. And then afterwards we walked into the living room to just like collapse and hang out and talk and do all the things you normally do on Thanksgiving. And uh, my wife, Amber, she was a teacher at the time and, she's, and she still is, but she's teaching and new in it. And, and she said, man, I am so happy to be on Thanksgiving break. This has been a really exhausting week. And like, this feels so good to just be here and be in this. And my aunt looked at her at that particular moment. And she, my aunt looks and says, yeah, uh, it must be really hard to work so much and not be able to be the keeper of your home. Ooh, I heard you guys. I felt that energy from you. Some of you guys are like, that's a great thing she said. And others of you are like, oh, br you're bristling. That's fascinating. <laughs> My wife looked at her and said, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean by that? What, what does that exactly mean? And my aunt said, well, I, I think it's a woman's duty to be the keeper of her home. A home is a place where you raise your kids. It's where you open your home to others. It's where you practice hospitality and you bless other people and you create this space and this haven and this thing. And I think that that's, that's her duty. And at this point in time, because it's my family and my relatives, I chime in, right? And I'm just like, wait, one sec. I was like, you know, we don't have any kids. Like, that's what I looked at. You know, I was like, we don't actually have any kids. And to be really honest, like, I think we both kind of look at our home as a thing that we're supposed to keep together. And there's a part where like, I do a lot of the cooking and we both kind of figure out some of the cleaning piece. I enjoy part of this. And, and we just kind of make a plan and work this thing out. Like, I don't know that it has to be that way. And then I said, and what does that have to do with Amber having a tiring week? And my aunt said that when she was growing up, her mom, who's my grandmother, didn't work and that she was the keeper of her home. This is like a, a, a verbiage that, that my aunt had learned along the way. And she said that she loved this because people would come by all the time. And this is true of my grandparents' house. People would come by all the time. And my grandma, you could walk into her house, and this is still true at any moment, and there'd be like a full spread. It, it'd almost be like she had been preparing for you to come over for like a party at some point and just could make that happen in like 
20 minutes, you guys. Like this weird thing where you show up and you're like, hi, and she had no idea you were coming. And the next thing you know, she's like, look at all of these things for you. And, and there was this amazing kind of hospitality. And, and people would come and they would hang out and they would eat and they would talk. And like there were people in and out of their home all of the time. And there was just this sense that, that that's what you did. My aunt said, you know, she was able to do all of that because she had the time to be the keeper of her home. And she looked at us and she goes, and I just think we're losing that as a culture. I think we're losing that as a society. My wife said a few more things and then we both kind of looked at each other with that knowing glance where you're like, we're probably not going to continue this conversation. And then we stopped. But I didn't get the memo because I was 24 and arrogant and like, you know, all of the things. And so with a ton of compassion, I just decided we should have an argument at this moment. (laughs) You know, like you do on Thanksgiving because that's the right thing. And I looked and I said, look, this isn't leave it to beaver. That was the quote. that came out of my mouth. I said, I know. I said, look, this isn't Leave It to Beaver. I know, I shouldn't have said that now. I look back and I'm like, I don't even know what Leave It to Beaver. I've never even seen an episode, you guys. I don't know what it is. It's just a generalization. And I said, honestly, that feels like an outdated statement from a bygone era that we no longer exist in. And I don't even know what to do with that. And then we started arguing. And everybody who was anybody decided this was the last place they wanted to be. And they got up and they left the conversation. Like people just started vacating the premises. You've all been a part of this family dynamic at one point, yeah? And everybody just starts leaving and we keep arguing with each other. And it's interesting because the honest truth is I just told my aunt, like think about what I just told my aunt. I was like, you are living in a fantasy world that is outdated, right? I just called her all of these things. Like that's not great. And I'd said all of this to her, but the truth was my aunt actually did live in that reality. She did. She wasn't employed. My uncle was the breadwinner of the house. They did well. They did all right. Um, and the truth is, my, for my aunt, there are people constantly in her home. Five out of seven days of the week, I bet you she is cooking a meal for somebody, hosting somebody, inviting random people in. Like, she really does this. I don't believe she probably has locks on her doors. Like, she's just this kind of person. She also chronically has somebody living in their basement. They finished their basement out, and she has somebody living there because they needed a place to stay, or they didn't know where to go, or they needed a moment to get back on their feet. She literally looks at her home as like a ministry to the world type of a thing and is using it constantly in this particular way. That is her reality. That is what she does. I had referred to her life as leave it to beaver and outdated. We began to argue for like the next 20 minutes or so. Everybody leaves the room and eventually my uncle walks in with a teapot and he's like, I don't know that we're going to get to the bottom of this right now. Who wants tea? <laughs> right? And we get the message and we stop talking. And I think all of, we both walked away feeling frustrated, feeling like we weren't seen or we weren't heard or like there was unfair expectation or something weird put on us. I love my aunt. She's one of my favorite people. And I know I have a special place in her, her heart too, but this is one of those moments where it's like you stand on the opposite of like a generational divide, you know, where you look and you're like, the way you're describing life feels so different and the way I'm describing life feels like it's counter to you. What do we do with that moment? Have you been there? Right? I think anybody in any generation can identify probably with Maybe both sides of this at times. Are you like me in that story? (laughs) Have you had that moment where an older generation seemed to give you a prescription for how to live your life? When I say prescription for how to live your life, all I mean is like if you do this and you do it this way and it looks like this, then your life will equate to and this is what's good and right. And you should, you know, it's like swallow this pill and it will take you here. Like do this thing, a prescription for life. Have you ever had that moment where an older generation seemed to prescribe you a way of living but it seemed like it was like going back in time 
Or it seemed like the way they were describing something was something that was really important and it worked for them and you felt like, but I don't even know what to do with that right now. I don't even know how to apply that. It feels confusing to me. Have you ever had an older generation prescribe to you how to parent, right? This is how you should be disciplining your kids, right? If I hear this even just walking through the grocery store. I will, I will hear random strangers stop somebody and be like, you know, if you just did this, and there's always some mom or dad who's frazzled. It's like, thanks for the input. I wanted to take a class right now, <laughs> right? It's really frustrating sometimes. How to work. You ever gotten a prescription for how work ought to be and how you ought to work? How to date? What relationships should look like? what life should be like, how to go about being a Christian. And you looked at all those things and you're like, I, I hear you, but I don't know what to do with that. And for whatever reason, it felt like that prescription. It was good and right at one point in time. And now, I don't know, it feels a little expired or it feels like it doesn't fit or it feels like there's something about it that feels out of reach to you somehow. And then it becomes frustrating. Or maybe you don't identify with me. Maybe you identify with my aunt in that particular story that I shared with you. Have you ever felt like the younger generation is looking at you and the way that you live and the things that you value and they're telling you you should be living by a whole new prescription and you should do away with those things? Should move on? Should get past that? Should leave it behind? Or that maybe the thing you care about isn't as important? Do you ever feel like a younger generation is trying to give you a whole new prescription for how to live, how to approach life, despite the fact that you have lived longer, been through more, and overcome more things than most of them will ever understand or realize, and now they're telling you how the world ought to be and how you ought to live your life as though you're brand new to this thing? And it feels frustrating? <laughs> and you feel disrespected or you're at the very least disconnected, and it's just it, something doesn't feel right about it, and it's hard. You know, for sometimes if you're part of an older generation, I bet it doesn't always feel like you're being given a new prescription as much as that something that you really value is being left behind and that that matters to you in this. I think this idea of being multi-generational is hard. I do. I think it's really hard because it's way easier just to surround ourselves with people who think like us, see the world like we do, act like us, agree with us, and just go, isn't that great? Isn't this how the whole thing's supposed to be? And then you put us all in one room together, and there's all those perspectives and all that nuance and all those differences and all of those things, and the next thing you know, it gets really hard. It's all like crammed into one space, and each generation from my experience tends to try to tell the other generations, this is how life ought to be. This is how relationships ought to be. This is how this thing ought to go. And then the conversation starts to devolve into this, it's my way. And then the other person goes, how dare you? No, it's my way. And then it's just this back and forth of my way versus your way until eventually many of us tend to just isolate back into pockets of people who look like us, act like us, think like us. And it gets really tough. I, I've talked with other people where they're like, are you sure you want to be a multi-generational church? That's really hard. Like that actually could be seen as a weakness. Isn't that weird? that that could be seen as a weakness? Because you're gonna have all these competing perspectives. Isn't it easier if you just get a bunch of people agree with you and you just do the things? But it's not a weakness. It is an incredibly powerful strength, friends. It's really easy to miss the beauty of what it means to live and learn alongside of each generation. 
It's really easy to miss all of the power of all of that perspective and the way that each of us brings something unique and important to the table. It's really easy to miss the fact that there's this multi-faceted perspective of experience of all of these generational shapings and things because each generation has been through something absolutely significant and has had to walk through stuff that God has shaped and built in them. And you bring all of that into this room and how powerful is that to be a church who carries all of that together? You know what I believe? is I believe all of that reflects the complexity and the bigness of God in such a powerful way. This is why we value this here as a church. Psalm 145, beginning at verse three, says this. This is David writing. He was one of the great kings of Israel. He says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one person can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And so I will... Meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They, they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. I wanted to open this series with this particular passage because David does something really profound here. He starts by saying, God's amazing and no one can fathom his greatness. No one person can wrap their heads around the bigness and the beauty and the power and the majesty and all the things of God, right? No one person can do that. And then he does something really interesting. What's he do? He begins saying, generations will speak of this though. And he says, they will speak. And consequently, he says, I begin to do these things. What he's saying here, what he's getting at, is he's saying that each generation brings this powerful kind of perspective of what God is capable of, of who he is and what he can do. And they speak it to other generations in a way that the one picture that each generation holds begins to broaden and the whole thing gets a little bigger so that the God that no one person can fathom starts to get a little fuller. And that image starts to get a little bigger, a little more powerful. I think this is David actually acknowledging the fact, celebrating it even, that as generations, we actually really need one another that it's really, really important to share our perspectives and our thoughts and our insights and to paint a fuller picture of God because we're all here. We're all walking through this thing together. I love that. And so let me say this to the younger generation. There's something beautiful. And you, by the way, when I say younger and older generations today, I'm not drawing a line. Like based on these dates, if you resonate with the word younger generation, great. If you resonate with the word older generation, great. To the younger generation, there's something absolutely beautiful in the way older generations see and know God that you honestly just don't see because you're not them. Not because you're stupid, not because you're bad, because you're just not them. You haven't gotten to live their life, walk their path and know what God has, has taught them. And so you actually need their perspective. You need their insight. You need the things that they have walked through and gone through and seen along the way because otherwise your picture of God is about this big. And as you start to talk and you start to learn from the lives of other people, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger because how big is our God? Who can fathom this, right? We want the biggest picture possible. But also, can I say to the older generations, there's something absolutely beautiful in the way that the younger generations see and know God that you honestly don't see because you're not them. Because God's doing something unique in them and bringing something to the table and you actually need them too so that the view of God that you have can get as big as it possibly can get so that you can have this thing get a little bigger and see the fullness and the glory of God in ways that you couldn't, other, couldn't otherwise as God keeps loving this whole thing forward. It is a really beautiful, really powerful thing, friends, to be a multi-generational church. It's a really beautiful and powerful thing just to have that expression even beyond this place, but in your life at large. This is important. You know, 
when I had that moment with my aunt, like I said, I was pretty, pretty newly married. I didn't have kids. I was about 24, and I thought I knew everything uh, at that point. You know, I'm two months now from turning 40, and I, I don't know that I'm like old and wise by any regard. But there's some things I've learned along the way about what it is to, to embrace this idea of being multi-generational that I wish I could go back and tell myself. Two things that I've learned that I think would have just helped that entire moment that exists there. And I want to share those things with you today. And then I want to applicate. In light of those two things, here's what I think we could do about that. And so here's the first one. Every older generation at some point comes to feel like something is being lost. This isn't, this isn't like a new moment pertaining to just an older generation, perhaps in, in this room or online joining with us or, or whatever. This is just consistently true throughout time. Every older generation comes to feel like something that matters to them is being lost. You know, that day that I was with my aunt, I heard her expressing her disapproval of the fact that my wife was working instead of staying at home, right? That's what I heard. And so I got really intense about it. And, and we got, you know, in an argument through this whole thing. And, and we're kind of going back and forth with this and agreeing to disagree. But you know what I know now? I get the language. I get how all that worked and how it came out. Here's the truth of, of what I think was actually happening then. I think my aunt was actually taking a moment to lament something that was really meaningful to her that she felt like as being lost. That's what I actually think was happening there. We started arguing over the prescription, but I think there was something really powerful behind all of it that means something to my aunt, right? She was lamenting the fact that this really beautiful thing that she grew up with, she's not seeing it or experiencing the same way. It was a big deal for her to know that her mom was always there. It was a huge deal for her to know that. She went through a lot of things growing up and just knowing that her mom was present and there and being able to have that kind of constancy was, was a big deal. I know it also meant a lot to her to know that her home wasn't just a place that they isolated in, but that it was a place for other people and that it was to be a blessing to others. And that was really powerful for her. And consequently, she had modeled her own life after this, that it was used to bless others. I know that my aunt has this deep, deep value of hospitality always for anybody all of the time. And that she's looking at this going, I, I feel like this is getting lost. And I think what she's actually saying, and I know this is true, what she was actually saying is, you know, amidst dual income living and amidst all the busyness and stresses of all the things that all of us are carrying, it feels like everybody's swirling around in this. And because of that, these really beautiful things feel like they're getting lost along the way. And I don't want to lose them. They're really important. I wish if I could go back to that moment that what I'd looked at my aunt would say, okay, wait, What's the thing you most value about all of this? Like, what's the thing in here that for you, you're like, this is so incredibly important to me. What, what, what is that? What do you most want me to know? But I didn't, because I stood on the other side of a generational divide, kind of shouting back and forth, so to speak. Here's the second piece, friends, that I want us to know, and it's this. Every younger generation wants to move forward, but comes to feel like an older generation is holding them back. Right? This has been true for a very, very long time. Every younger generation wants to do something to move forward or to change something or to make something that they perceive as better or different or just whatever it is, and then feel like an older generation is standing guard or doing something that essentially holds them back. You know, as Amber and I, my wife talked that day, we were both young, we had no money. Both of our incomes combined were enough to pay our bills and like take care of the things that we need to take care of. Either of us alone would have been struggling in a really, really big way at that particular point in time. 
we were fighting to start our careers and establish our lives. The cost of living compared to like the average wage and all of those things was very different than perhaps when my aunt was even growing up at that particular moment. And I know it's not always apples to apples in, in all of this stuff. But there was complexity that we were working through as we were trying to establish ourselves. And as we sat there listening to my aunt talk about the woman needing to be the keeper of her home, all it felt like was there was this thing she was describing about how life ought to be and how we ought to live it in a way that just felt like we couldn't do it or we wouldn't be able to make that happen and that we were doing the best that we could with what we had. And it was like there was this perspective that should we engage this stood in our way and we didn't know what to do about that. And you know what, on top of that, my wife didn't want to be the keeper of her home in the same exact way that my aunt did. She'd worked like crazy to get scholarships to go to college so that she could become a teacher and start a career and there was a passion here. We both want to have an amazing home life, right? With where we raise our kids in it and do good things and have hospitality and all this stuff, but we, it looks different for the two of us. For us, it felt like at that particular moment, like an older generation was trying to prescribe their life choices and lifestyle on us in a way that made it hard to move forward. We missed the care and they missed the complexity of what we were walking through. And consequently, we stood on two different sides of a generational divide and we just missed each other. And that's really easy to do. Do you know, I, I wanted to illustrate this really clearly because did you know that this same sense of feeling like an older generation and a younger generation are at odds with each other was one of the very first conflicts in the beginning of the early church in the book of Acts? Do you know this? And it doesn't necessarily have to do with age. There are a group of people who are older spiritually. They had been following God and doing things historically for a very long time. And then there was a group of like brand new Christians that were just getting started along the way. And these two groups become at odds with each other because there's this sense that something is being lost and there's a sense that these people are holding us back and it just starts to clash. We read about this in the book of Acts. If you've never read the book of Acts before, it's an awesome book. It details the history of the church, the beginning of it, and how it moved and blossomed and all the leaders, and also lots of complexity about things that they went through at an early point. Right off the bat, there's this massive tension because you have all of these different people in one space trying to figure out how to believe together and live life together. It creates all this tension. And that tension is largely around one particular issue that will surprise most of us, circumcision of all things, guys. It was around circumcision. The old guard, so to speak, these were the people who had been Jewish and were Jewish and had been following this and their ancestors and so on for a very, very long time. They had this rich history of following God. Way, way back in the Old Testament, God goes to a man named Abraham, right? He's like the great patriarch, so to speak, of Judaism. And he goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, at that point in time, all the different cultures kind of looked at God or gods as being far out there and you had to somehow earn their approval so that they would, you know, do say nice things for you and all this stuff. God goes to Abraham and he does something totally different. He kind of blows all of that up and he says, I want to have a personal relationship with you. I want to take you somewhere and lead you somewhere. I want to actually be your God. You'll be my people. There's this really beautiful kind of dynamic that goes with this. And he says, I'm going to make you a promise and this promise is good to you and all of your descendants that we're going to have this, this more intimate kind of relationship where we do life together. Now, back in ancient cultures, every time a big significant promise like this was made, it was something called a covenant in general. And in very ancient cultures, covenants always had some sort of seal or sign attached to them, often having to do with the shedding of blood. If you look and you go, why? Well, it's because they were ancient cultures and did and saw things very, very differently than perhaps you and I would look at them now. So the sign, the sign, you guys, of this promise between God and Abraham was that Abraham and all of his descendants would be circumcised 
would be circumcised. And that would become a physical sign that they were the people of God, that they didn't follow other gods, that they didn't worship idols or do these different things, that they, they were obedient, that they, were lo- faith, they had their faith in God, like all of these things, right? Like there's this really beautiful stuff that gets attached to this. I know it's weird where we would look and be like, really, around circumcision? That feels so strange. But it wasn't. For a Jewish person entering into the first century, for thousands of years, every Jewish person had been growing up and getting circumcised when they were very, very young, right? As a sign of their obedience to God, of their commitment to God, that they were a part of the promise of God, that God was with them. Do you see all the beautiful things that are tethered to this very symbolic type of experience that they had been holding as a very long-term tradition? This all happened. And it's all a part of their culture. So now back to the book of Acts. I'm going to read Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture here because I want you to see what was happening. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, these are places in Israel, and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas, two prominent church leaders, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So this forms the very first church council in church history. This is called the Jerusalem Council. It's the very first time they're like, we don't know what to do with this. We need to gather all the people and have a big conversation. So they go, back to verse three, the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. Everybody's pretty excited about all the amazing things that are happening. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had been doing through them. Then, verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So this is what's happening. Let me explain. So the old guard, right? These group of people that for a long, long, long time had been circumcising each male member of their household is this significant sign and then seeking to follow the Jewish law in accordance with the Old Testament, right? Like trying to do all of this stuff where like, Look, we love it that there's these new believers. When it says Gentiles, it just means everyone who wasn't a Jewish person. We love that the whole world is now coming to like know Jesus. We love that he's transforming lives. We love that he's working in hearts. We love all these beautiful things that he's doing. Like this is exciting. We love it. We're with it. But also they can't just leave the past behind. Like they can't just ignore this stuff. And there's people becoming part of the church. Like I get all the good things. I get that that's happening. But because this thing has been really significant to us for a very long time and it has great meaning and there was, our ancestors did this and this has been handed down and there's purpose and there's potential. And this is symbolic, you guys. This is huge. They can't just decide they don't want to do this and not do it. Like this becomes really, really important. It's an important practice to us and we're worried it's just going to get disregarded and lost along the way. Why? Because every older generation (laughs) at some point in time comes to feel like something significant is being lost or left. Meanwhile, you have these new non-Jewish people who are trying to follow Christ and they've become a part of the church for the very first time. And they were told that God loves them. They were told that there's the love and grace of Jesus Christ, that they are forgiven, that there's nothing but Christ that will save them and that if they put their faith in him, that there's this newness of life and that they're part of this larger community called the church and they've been enfolded in and there's this transformation and these amazingly good things that are beginning to happen. 
And then this group comes to them and goes, that's all really good. I know you've been doing this, but there's something else you have to do. Can you imagine this conversation, you guys? I mean, think about it. Can you imagine? Like we would look and be like, what a weird thing to have tension about. No, I think this would create a lot of tension if I'm really honest with you. And I'm serious. Imagine the conversation. Okay, yeah, we love Jesus. Yeah, this has been amazing. I love being a part of a church. Like this has been so good. I'll I'll do something. What is it that you want me to do? Well, the thing that you're going to have to do is like, you know, cut the foreskin off of your reproductive area. That's what you're going to, wait, pause. What? I have to do what? No, no, no. Like, it, it's okay. We've been doing this for like a long time. This is a part of a great historic tradition. There's all this beauty and symbolism in it. There's all this really amazing stuff that, and it's a sign that like, you, you know, are a child of God and all these other things. I have to do what? You said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. You said nothing about minor surgery and all of this other stuff. And I'm going to remember all this. I'm not an infant. Yeah, well, Abraham wasn't an infant either. And he put his faith in God and did the thing. So where are you at? You know, this, like, could you imagine this moment? It would have been ridiculous. And they would have come to a head over this. Like this was a big thing to clash over. And so they formed this council, Acts chapter 15. And it gets really crazy for the Jewish Christians. Do we just let the new Christians Right? Do we just let the new Christians with their approach to following God simply abandon these older practices simply because they don't like it? Simply because it feels outdated? Are they just literally going to take all of the good stuff and not have to do any of the other stuff? Like that seems super weird. You know what? This younger generation is entitled and they think they can just have things without having to do the work to get the things. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? Or what about the Gentile Christians, these brand new Christians? Do we really have to follow all of these rules and practices that don't actually seem like they're needed or relevant? Like, we were taught about Jesus and we were taught about this other stuff. This feels like an outlier. Like, this feels like something else that's trying to, like, still be significant, but it doesn't feel like it matters the same way that it used to. And you know what? They don't understand how hard all of this is. And they don't understand that the world has changed and that this whole thing has changed and we don't even need to follow the law and that stuff anymore. And they're still just trying to hold on to this for the sake of tradition or because they want us to do it their way, but it doesn't work for us. Sound familiar? We feel these same tensions, don't we? See, this isn't like some brand new thing where it's like a generational divide. It's just, this has always been a thing, you guys. Ask yourself this question. What is it that you feel like the younger generation simply doesn't get? Don't answer that out loud. Oh, you laugh. What is it that you think perhaps is being lost? What is it that you think your generation did well that now that you look at the younger generation, you just don't see them doing it all or you see them seeming to disregard it and it bothers you? At the very least, it's hard for you to watch that happen. Or what is it that you think the older generation simply doesn't understand? What are they missing? What do they not get? What do you think would change if they let go and got out of your way? Right? What do you think would change if suddenly they didn't, make you do the things the way that they did and they just let you do the things the way that you think you ought to be able to do them? What is it that you think your generation does well or different or better than perhaps an older generation has done? See, we have these thoughts all the time, you guys. And we make these statements all the time. My favorite part 
about this whole conversation and this whole tension is that every young generation gets to grow up to be an old generation and feel all the exact same things. Just like every one of you in an older generation in here is like, I did this at one point in time too. There's this cycle to this whole thing. I love the great irony of it. What do we do? In all the complexity, how do we live out the best, right, of a multi-generational value? Because it is a good and beautiful thing. It's not a hindrance. It's not a hardship. It's a good and beautiful thing. I think the question I want to ask today is, what do you do? What do we do to make space for things to move forward while also caring about what is being lost? It doesn't have to be either or on this particular thing, you guys. What do we do to make space for things to move forward, but while also caring about significant things that perhaps are being lost? You know, when faced with this same tension, I think the early church did a remarkable job of working their way through it. And I think the conclusion that they drew at the end is an amazing model for us. And I want to show us this. Acts chapter 15, again, uh, in verse 19, James, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church, says, okay, here's what we have come up with. And he says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, if you're listening to that last part and you're like, that is a weird grouping of like things to avoid. All of those things, every, it's not an accident. Every single one of those things pertain to what you would have done in Roman temple worship of another God. That's what all of those things are tied to. And so what he is saying is, let's, this is what's really beautiful. I think this is profound, you guys. Rather than holding the one thing and saying, but they said, and but you said, and which one of these two is right? They go, okay, wait, wait, wait. Here's the way forward. Let's not make it difficult for the new Gentile Christians, meaning let's not make them hold to old practices that don't fit the context anymore in the same way. Let's let them write a new prescription here. But let's not lose the very things that we valued in those things because they're too important to let go of. They're too important to allow to change. That thing that was a sign that you were with God, that thing that was a sign that, that you did not worship other gods and that you didn't fall back into some other kind of faith system or religion, but that you were just living your life fully in Christ, let's begin mentoring them about what it's like to love Jesus and stay in this way. Let's not rely upon a circumcision prescription. Let's step into this in a brand new and a different way. Why? Because we don't want to lose the value because some values are too important to lose. Let me summarize what I think they did that served so brilliantly that I think can be a model for us. It's this. They let the prescription change without losing what it is they valued. I think this is an important key to what it is to be a multi-generational community of people, friends. I think this is absolutely huge. They didn't require new Christians to take on the old practices in the exact same way that they did, but they made sure that those values lived on inside of them because that's what they were after all along. Let me tell you why I think this is so big. More often than not, what happens is we get into these generational arguments. Well, millennials are like, okay, because that's the one I hear all the time, right? And then millennials have learned to say, well, boomers are like, and I always wonder where Gen X is in the middle of all these. And if you're not familiar with generations, that's okay. Just, you get people kind of shouting about, this is what these people do, and this is where these people are wrong, and, and you get people criticizing the other. And what ends up happening is, it's, is it my way, or is it going to be your way? And it devolves into this thing, much like we've been talking about today, where we don't hear each other, and in, we start fighting over the prescription, and in doing so, we completely lose the value altogether. And it just gets lost. Everything kind of gets weird and lost and disregarded along the way. There's a better practice than this. 
Instead of a my way versus your way conversation, the early church said, no matter how we move forward, because we know that it's gonna be different because this world is changing and Christ is changing us and things are happening, there are some things that are too important to lose. And we need to learn how to mentor and communicate those things to the next generation so that they live on. With that, I wanna put a challenge before the older generation and then a challenge before the younger generation here today in hopes that we might continue living out this beautiful thing of being a multi-generational church. And not just because it's like a great value to aspire to, because it portrays and illustrates and broadens our own minds to the bigness of God, to the goodness and the fullness of the picture. It's an incomplete image without all of us. There's something that God does in each and every generation that just illustrates aspects of who he is that we can't get any other way. It's so incredibly important. And so, for the older generation, can I challenge you with this? Mentor the values while letting the prescription change. That's the thing that I would challenge you with. Mentor the values while letting the prescription change. Now, this involves two really important steps. There are things that I promise that you care about and they are good and beautiful things because of how you've been shaped, what you have walked through and good things that you have seen through a lifetime of experience. Ask yourselves the question in this, in those things that I did or in those things that that these traditions or in these moments, what was most important about it? What was the value behind it? What was the thing that I really cared about there? And I need you to figure out what that is. We as as all kinds of generations need you to figure out what that is because some of those things are vital, important lessons that are inside of you that we need as a church. They're important for us to learn from and to understand and be willing to communicate those things. Mentor us, help shape the next generation by saying, you know what? It's the difference between that moment with my aunt. Like, let me, let me illustrate it this way. I could have gone back and just said, you know what I think my aunt wanted was she wanted my wife to be a stay-at-home mom. I don't know that that's what my aunt actually wanted. I know that that's the prescription we were talking over in that particular moment. But if I'd pause to say, what is it that you really value? You know what we would have found? I would have looked and said, that's a really beautiful thing. And I don't always get to do that in my life. And I want to find a way to integrate that. I want to find a way to understand that in a different way. The prescription can change, you guys. But the values are tough. Let me illustrate it this way too. I was sitting with some people in their 60s recently, part of the boomer generation. And they were talking with me, uh, lamenting with me about how their granddaughter comes over and ignores them. Because she's on her phone all of the time right? My own child is in here. No, this is not about you. I feel like I need to clear that up, right? Lamenting that their granddaughter is, is like always on their phone. And I said, so tell me like, yeah, I mean, that's pretty normal these days. Like I get that. And they said, well, she always has a screen in her face. And I'm wondering if she knows how to have a conversation with a real person anymore. Like it doesn't feel like she talks to real people. It feels like all she does is interact with this device, this thing. And I said, well, yeah. And then the other person said, well, everyone is just so isolated on their phones. What I hate is that we're all sitting in a room together, but we're not even together anymore. We may as well not even be there together because we're all just staring at these things and together's not really happening anymore. And I said, well, have you talked to her about this? And they said, yeah, we did. I said, like, get your face out of that phone. And why do you use this thing too much? You guys laugh, right? And why do you use this thing so much? And you're gonna rot your brain and like, that's not a real person. You need to go meet real people and have real conversations. And I said, how did that go? And they looked and they said, not really well. Like she looked and said, you just rolled, she rolled her eyes and said, you don't understand. And then said, you know, this is where all of my friends are. and We're all actually connected on this thing. And that's what I'm doing right now. And they're like, yeah, so we don't know what to do. And they weren't asking me to solve this. This is a random conversation that we were having. Here's what I think is interesting. 
right? What's happening here is that two very caring grandparents, and they are, got into a conversation with their granddaughter and they ended up arguing about the prescription. What I mean by that is they ended up arguing about the method that she was following to do it, her live her life and do what she was doing. You should spend less time on your phone. You shouldn't be doing this thing. Like you need to not, you need to talk to real people, not devices, right? These things. And consequently, all it turned into is what? My way versus your way. You don't understand. No, you don't understand. But you know what the truth of these two particular grandparents are? They love their granddaughter dearly. And I think what was the hardest piece is that when she would come over, they wanted to know and be known by her and to connect with her and to be connected to her. And they were missing that. And there was a piece where they felt like this phone stood in their way. But do you know what never got expressed? The value. That really beautiful, that really powerful value behind the whole thing. See, that's a place where even a granddaughter can look and say, well, I love you too. And okay, <laughs> you're not going to get them to spend less time on their phones, like, unless you're forceful and weird about it. Like, this is the thing, but you can communicate and instill and mentor the values in such a way that the beautiful thing that we all long for isn't getting lost. And let me tell you why that's so important, statistically. Do you know that roughly 30%, this, this statistic hovers around 30%, I think it's like 28% for millennials, 31% for Gen Z, acknowledge having no real friendships in their life. Just on an open Pew Research survey, you guys, like national massive survey, 30% of the millennial generation and of Gen Z, while being the most digitally connected generation in American history, while being the most globally connected generation in American history, will openly acknowledge when surveyed that they don't have anyone who really knows them or that they feel known by. 30%, you guys. What does that tell us? We gotta stop arguing over the prescriptions and we gotta start mentoring the value because no one should live their life without having at least a couple of people who deeply know them and that they get to be known by and they get to do the same in return. That is a powerful, powerful thing, friends. Do you see how important this is? I know that's just one situation, but this applies across the board. There's wisdom that you have. You're not gonna get to change the prescription for the next generation, but you can always mentor the value. It is good and beautiful, and we need that from older generations, do we not? That brings me to the younger generation. And I'm gonna apologize to the younger generation. I phrase this weird like a robot, so I might have to explain it. It's this, embed an old value in a new prescription. <laughs> All I mean by that is take the values that older generations have come to know and learn and find, and you don't have to do it the way that they did it, but find ways to integrate it into what you're doing. Find ways to make it happen through what you're doing. There's this delightful kind of arrogance to being a part of a younger generation. I love it. I experienced it myself. I was like a poster child for this. You get a front row seat to what you see older generations do that you like and what you don't like. And then you get to be like, that's dumb. I'm going to do it differently. Every generation gets to do this. And there's this weird arrogance as you come into adulthood where you're like, we have it all figured out now and we're going to change it all. Like we're going to do this the right way as though like we're not, you know, 2000 years in past Christ. Like anyway, there's this arrogance to this thing and it's beautiful and it causes change and I, like all kinds of things to happen. But the inescapable truth that every generation will come to know is this, you're not the first chapter in a new book of history. I, always, I thought I was, I really wanted to be. Like, here we go, standing on the precipice of the new era. No, I'm the next chapter in a book that's really, really old. 
that generations upon generations have been carving. You're a new chapter, but you're not a new book. Right? We stand on the shoulders of other people who have come before us. Wisdom for a younger generation is choosing to take the best of what has come before you as you choose to chart your own course and write the next chapter. That's what real wisdom is. It's not burning the book and disregarding it. It's taking the very best of what has been learned and passed down and choosing where to take it from here. And so what that means is there are things that your parents and your grandparents value because of what they have been through. You don't have to do what they did. You don't. They probably didn't either. You don't have to follow the same prescription, but don't lose the beautiful lessons and values that were learned along the way. Find ways to assimilate them. Find ways to integrate them into the new thing that you're doing. Find ways to step forward into whatever this thing is while not leaving something good and beautiful behind. A a good example of this, two of them. I I don't care that you're on your phone, right? That's for me personally, I I really don't. Like, and, and don't get me wrong, in some aspects I do and I get like addictive tendencies and all the other, like we could talk for a long, long time about this. I've read tons of research on it. But right now, I don't really care that you're on your phone a lot, but I do care that as a younger generation, that you find ways to take this value of being connected and of being known and of being an integral part of a community and find a way to bring it out in the things that you're doing. I don't know what that'll look like for you, but I know as older generations, we'd love to partner or figure that out. And I know that's something I still need to figure out even for me in my own life as I continue to grow. Or here's another one, and I'll be quick. You know, there's this thing where I grew up hearing, I grew up in churches, and so I grew up hearing that you needed to read your Bible every day in the morning specifically for 30 minutes to have a daily quiet time with God and that this was the recipe for how you were, you were to grow with God. This is a recipe for how you were to know that you had like a, a thriving and good spirituality and all these different things. Like I, I had this built into me, like baked into me like a recipe. If I followed this formula, here's the prescription if I did this. And here's the truth. I, I don't know that that's the thing that you need to do. I'm gonna be really honest. As a younger generation, what I'm not saying is so follow the formula and do the exact same thing. But here's what I will tell you as a younger generation. You've got to find a way to fall in love with the scriptures in your own way. You've got to find a way to make those words come alive in your heart in a way that you learn and that thing gets to grow and become alive in you. You've got to find a path in there where that good and beautiful value of God's revelation making itself known to you through that become something that is good and beautiful in your life. Now, I don't know if that's reading it for 30 minutes every day, but what I do know is it's important and that there's a value in that. And then I'd say, figure that out for you. Let's figure it out together if that you want to do that. And let's, let's talk about that. The important thing is that you find a way to connect with it because some things are too good, too beautiful, too important to be left behind, Right? This is the piece here, friends. In closing, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, take, I want you to take a moment, even just right now, look around you. Look at all the people in this room. Look in front of you, look in back of you. Look all around you. If you're joining us in the chapel, you too. If you're joining us at home, you too. Imagine a room full of people. I want you to, just having looked around you, I want you to think of, this is one service in a church. I want you to think of all the perspective that exists in this place right now. Think about that. I want you to think of all of the history I want you to think of everything that has been collectively faced by the different people in this room. I want you to think of everything that has been learned, everything that has been overcome, every skill that has been strengthened, every strength that has been fostered, every weakness that's been subsidized, every piece of growth that Christ has done in and through somebody in this room right now, generationally. 
even. When you think of all of that collective perspective, all of that insight, all of that wisdom, all that God has taught each and every one of us about what it means to live life. And now I want you to think of all of that connected in unison through the love and grace of Jesus Christ, bound together in a unified way. And I want you to think, what is there that we could not do? What is there that we could not rise together and not overcome? With all of that bound together, what is there that we cannot learn? What is there that we cannot learn from one another? What is there that we cannot go shoulder to shoulder and walk through together? See, being a multi-generational church isn't a hindrance. It is our greatest of strengths because it takes the diversity of all that God is doing and it unites it together in one powerful thing called the church. And we are so grateful to have you, friends. We love this. Help us lead it out. And let's continue to be open and embrace one another. And I'm excited for the weeks to come.